Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City. Coming to you today from our nation's capital, we have with us Dr. Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. How are you today, Corey? I am exceedingly well. Thank you, David. That's excellent to hear. And uh, walking somewhere along the boulevards of Washington, D.C., we have the New York Times' David Sanger. How are you doing, David? Well, I'm recovering from a White House briefing. But, you know, they were always more exciting during the Trump era. These times, they're not quite as exciting, but they are more informative. Yeah, and I saw one the other day where they handed out cookies. I'm sorry you missed that one. I, you know, I always end up at the wrong one, David. <laughs> yeah. And uh, also, of course, in Washington, D.C., from the Financial Times, we have Edward Luce. How are you today, Ed? Surpassingly well. Surpassingly well. So all of you guys are doing well. It's springtime. It's sunny out. Um, before the podcast began, Corey Shockey shared with us shocking uh, gossip that we can't share with you about Washington. So that was really exciting. And uh, I just want you to know, we all know, know that. And later on, when it becomes public, we'll tell you we knew in advance. Uh, but we, had the, a, we had to cl- make clear that the gossip was not about Corey herself, which is always shocking. <laughs> <laughs> it was not. It never is. Corey Shockey is um, the model. A prim 19th century school teacher type. Otherwise known as shocking shacky. Um, yeah, that's, that's, uh, yeah. Ed, Ed as you can to... imagine, when I was in third grade, I did get called Electra a whole lot. Oh, Electra, that's good. That's, yeah, I got Roth cough, like, <coughs> so, Roth, <laughs> which was always extremely hilarious. I can't imagine what they said to Ed Luce. There was, there was one boy at boarding school who called me Edwina Lucy. And it got me really annoyed because obviously being a girl is the worst possible thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, and David Sanger, no one would dare. I thought there was a lot of pretending to be girls going on in British boarding schools. This was a mixed school. So none of, none of those implications, Corey. <laughs> I, I didn't even know those existed in England in the 18th century. <laughs> <laughs> they probably didn't in the 18th century. They exist in the 20th century to preserve the 18th century. So <laughs> here we are um, uh, approaching the 100th day of the Biden administration. And of course, you know, everybody is under obligation to write 100 days of the Biden administration column. I just filed mine. Um, I, I'm sure that Ed has filed one and David has filed one and Corey is delighted that she doesn't have to, but maybe she has. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, I thought we would try to find a somewhat different perspective on this from most of them. 
And that is look at the first 100 days of the Biden administration from the perspective of foreign policy, national security policy, what it means for the rest of the world, how big a, a change it is from uh, the, the Trump days. And I'm going to do this little impressionistically at first, and then we'll zero in on some things. But when you think back on the past 100 days, Corey, what, what, do, you, what do you think are the headlines of the first of, of, of the Biden administration's, you know, uh, inaugural steps? Uh, so the first thing I realize this is bad for David Sanger and the journalists in our midst, Ed Luce, but I am so grateful for the boring competence of the Biden administration, for the fact that we are not seeing, uh, you know, unsourced reports from one part of the government that undercuts uh, decisions ostensibly made jointly. Uh, the, you know, having the same message that you want to send being sent from different places, the genuine excellence of issuing interim national security guidance six weeks into the administration. I've never understood why administrations waste the first year of their time developing a national security strategy that they should have developed as part of their campaign. So I loved that. Um, I'm less enamored of the decision uh, to have a time-based end to, the, to our participation in the Afghan war. I'm worried about uh, the gaps between what they are, uh, the, the place where they're indulging rhetorical flourishes uh, are twofold and I'm worried about both of them. One is, as we discussed last week, how far forward they're leaning on human rights, uh, where it's not clear they're actually willing to uh, make the compromises uh, or back up those words with policies that are anything other than uh, economic sanctions. And the second area, I think they're indulging rhetorical flourishes um, is uh, President Biden talking about Vladimir Putin as a killer. Uh, because while I believe it's true, it's almost Trumpian in its juvenilia. Um, and I expected better than that of the Biden administration. And I uh, hope that they won't continue doing that kind of stuff because I think it drives up the cost of what the United States needs to get accomplished in foreign and defense policy. Um, the last area where I think I have some concern is it looks to me like their trade policy is a pretty straight line continuation of Trump administration trade policy. Lots of tariffs, no free trade agreements, um, describing as domestically impossible uh, and saying that you know they're returning to a foreign policy for the middle class. When I actually think American foreign policy over the last 70 years or so has been pretty consistently good for the American public. So here to defend rhetorical flourishes, I naturally turn to Ed Luce. Well, I mean, I do, I think we've discussed the um, um, foreign policy for middle class before and I share some of Corey's um, uh, misgivings, but um, I mean, uh, overall, I mean, you're right, David. Um, I'm, do, I'm doing a, a, long, a longer piece, not a column, but so I'm talking to a lot of people about his first hundred days in and out of the administration. And, um, and it's a very, 
instructive exercise. And it's amazing how often people only think of the domestic first 100 days, but the, the foreign policy first 100 days is a hugely important 100 days as well. The opening sort of um, uh, relationships with the rest of the world. And broadly speaking, I think it's been more tentative and conservative, considerably more tentative conservative than the domestic front because it doesn't need to be radical. Um, all it needs to be is not Trump. All it needs to be is competent. All it needs to be is um, civil um, and constructive in conversations with allies and adversaries alike. So, and I think by and large, that's what, that's what the Biden administration has done. And they've done that mostly on Zoom, which is a lot more difficult for you know um to do diplomacy via zoom it's as difficult as it is to teach on zoom as it is to do diplomacy on zoom and you know teaching hasn't gone particularly well in the last year so i would give them fairly high marks um i think there's been some surprise the degree to which uh this shift from trump to biden hasn't received more um um uh, responsiveness hasn't been met with more responsiveness other than rhetorical from America's allies. Um, uh, the, there's a lot of wariness, I think, around the world about how quickly things can change and radically things can change in America. And they want to see, they want to see concrete action. And some of these issues, like the trade one that um, Corey mentioned, uh, are a continuation from Trump. Other issues that there are a continuation from Trump Nord Stream pipeline, which I totally understand. I think Trump was right on that, and I think Biden is right on it. Um, but the frictions that are there, for example, with European allies, um, are not going to magically go away because Biden isn't Trump. Uh, what we can say is because Biden is Biden, and he has competent, highly competent people around him and strategic brains um, in his administration, is that we can expect the best um, good faith and um, experienced effort to deal with these very, very difficult problems. And we haven't mentioned China, but it, you know, it's obviously the biggest problem of them all. If I could, before I turn to David, I do want to say on the trade front, um, well, I, I understand what you mean, both of you, that it's continuing uh, to be, you know, a little bit more uh, oriented towards the, the workers in the United States and less oriented towards free trade than even Democrats have been in the past. It is different from Trump, right? That we're not going to get into trade pissing matches with our allies, with, with Europe, with Canada, with some of the other uh, times that Trump decided to do that just to tweak our allies, uh, particularly in the early stages of the administration. Uh, the policies towards China may look quite similar, but but, but policies towards our friends may not. Uh, David, what do you think? Well, first, I'm not writing a first 100 days piece, um, in part because I think if you look back at our recent presidents, if you measured by the first 100 days, you wouldn't learn very much. The first 100 days of George W. Bush were before 9-11, and we don't recall a whole lot about it uh, because particularly in the foreign policy arena, I don't think he had much of a sense of what he wanted to do except on immigration. If you look at the first 100 days of Barack Obama, uh, it was consumed by the financial crisis and 
the things that we came for good or ill to think about the administration over time uh, certainly hadn't happened yet. So I wouldn't register that much. That said, a couple of things have been highly impressive. Corey's mentioned one, competence. I would say the second would be the degree to, of advanced planning they have. The reason that they were able to turn out a national security policy or an interim one so quickly is they had actually thought it through at length during the transition. And if you compare that to, uh, well, the Trump administration, where they had no idea and they were sitting around, you know, interviewing people de novo, um, uh, that's, that's number one. Number two is I think that I hope that this has been an argument for uh, why experience in government is more important when you're going into government positions than experience in business. You know, for the longest time, we kept electing people on the basis that they would bring a business sensibility to governance. While it sounds nice and, you know, has sort of a broad appeal, it turns out that knowing how the levers of government actually work means something. And I think you've seen the results of that. Um, I've been surprised by the degree of um, aggressiveness out the door at um, both uh, Putin and uh, Xi Jinping. Uh, I think they were quite concerned that they would be labeled early on as to be sort of old school uh, Democrats seeking resets every place. And I think that was probably a good way to be coming out because it's always easier to back up after your first summits and relax things than it is to toughen them. Um, I think the things they've been taken by surprise on, I would, I would just mark two. One has been how quickly the border blew up on them. Um, probably predictable. I don't think that was a case where they were sort of on their, on their um, back heels in reacting to it. And I think the second you've seen play out just in the past couple of days, which is the degree to which they were not prepared for the position they were going to be in of having to export vaccines to places elsewhere in the world that were also COVID hotspots. They were sort of left a little bit with the language of, uh, you know, a little leftover of the America first, which is we take care of Americans first on the vaccine. Uh, I just emerged from a White House briefing where they announced what was clear to everybody they were going to have to announce, which was that they're going to ship AstraZeneca vaccine, which has not yet been approved in the U.S., um, out to others. They don't have any yet. The FDA first has to certify that they're safe, but they should have seen that one coming. But overall, they saw more coming than you would expect from most administrations. And uh, they've handled it uh, pretty well. I'll add, add one more. The speed with which they're getting the Iran deal back together surprised me. I didn't think the Iranians would be ready. Maybe in the end, they won't be. There's a delegation of Israeli intelligence officials led by uh, Yossi Cohen, the head of the Mossad in Washington, uh, starting today to try to go talk them out of this. Um, that's not going to work. Um, but uh, we're getting the most vivid demonstration of a president who's not going to be necessarily uh, as uh, deferential to the views of the Israeli government uh, as, say, President Trump was. So, Corey. 100 days in, if you went to the average person in, say, the Department of Defense, you deal with them a lot, how would they say things are different? That's a great question. I think things are a lot less different in defense policy than they are in other realms. 
both the prior administration and the current administration were prepared to write off Afghanistan uh, without conditions being met by the Taliban. Uh, both the prior and the current administration had very ambitious national defense strategies that they are dangerously underfunding. And in the last two years of the Trump administration and in the forthcoming Biden administration budget. A couple of big differences though. One is that the Austin Pentagon is bringing in a lot of domestic and non-defense uh, issues into the defense purview, the priority on climate change, uh, the emphasis on um, uh, redressing racism and white nationalism in the ranks and an increased priority on sexual harassment and sexual assaults and how they are handled in the military. So I think the domestic politics focus of the administration more generally is evident also in the Department of Defense. And that is a big outlier from the Trump administration's emphasis on lethality and warfighting functions and trying to shield the department from either spending priorities or policies that would distract from fighting and winning a, a potential war against China, for example. Ed, you know, I was thinking about David's comment a moment ago regarding uh, COVID and the vaccine. And, uh, you know, there's another way to look at it. You know, I think it's, it's quite striking that right now the world is saying, oh, well, the, the United States needs to be the one to step up and help in India, or the United States needs to step up and help in these places. A hundred days ago, everybody thought the U.S. was making the problem worse. The U.S. was not stepping up anywhere. The U.S. was a laggard in these issues. Nobody wanted to emulate us. And just a hundred days later, there is this sense that the U.S. is leading again. And, and, you know, I, I mean, I, you, you follow India much more closely than anybody else. And what's going on there is catastrophic. But I probably follow, you know, several hundred Indian social media accounts. And there is a real, you know, like, please, America, help us, you know, provide us this, provide us that. Um, I, it's just, as, as reversals go in a short period of time, it strikes me as one of the more remarkable ones. It, it is remarkable. I mean, the, um, if you go back less than 100 days, um, the BJP, the ruling BJP, was um, issuing a resolution congratulating Narendra Modi for having defeated coronavirus in India. Um, so the speed with which things have changed in America, not just in America, but in India, is breathtaking. Um, and it is now um, a complete reversal. I mean, India was the sort of source of principal sort, leading source of um, vaccine exports, and hopefully will be again, um, having the largest vaccine plant in the world in Pune, the Serum Institute plant, um, is now desperate for any kind of help they can get. I mean, I think the Biden administration probably took two or three days too long to understand the urgency of the situation. And there is, you know, a soft America first, as every country has for the vaccine. Um, you know, America did over-procure over, over -procure, um, each of the vaccines in case one of them failed. 
So America's going to end up with way too many, hundreds of millions too many vaccines. And therefore it has the ability now that we're sort of approaching critical mass, well, hopefully approaching critical mass, it has the ability now to, to do a really big global effort, not just in India, but in Africa, where I'm told the numbers are as underreported as they've been in India, that you've got really big, outside of South Africa, you've got a really big COVID problem there that's just not fully understood yet. Um, phase one of this WHO COVAX plan, you know, is to inoculate 20% of the developing world before the end of this year. That's not looking promising at the moment. If what Biden has just um, announced today about AstraZeneca um, uh, can be stepped up um, and, and we can get uh, the Europeans doing something similar, then you know, maybe we can meet those targets. But those targets are beginning to look very, very difficult to achieve, but also too low, too low um, by the standards of how quickly this virus is mutating. We're gonna need to, so I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm agreeing with you, but I'm sort of looking ahead as to the challenges Biden will face. And I have no doubt, I have no doubt he will try to meet them and might well succeed. Well, you know, it's, 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 it's sort of proof of the old saying that life comes at you fast. And it, uh, uh, you folks mentioned it came at them kind of faster than they thought at the border. I think in India that they've had a million new cases in the past three days which is, you know, un incomparable to anything else we faced. Another place where life sort of came at the U.S. fast a couple of months ago and undoubtedly is going to come at us fast again in the next couple of months is on the cyber front. And that's your beat, David. And, and I'm just wondering if you look at how we handle those issues now compared to how we handled them 100 days ago, what's different? Well, the first thing, David, is there's vastly more high-level attention to it. Um, there's now a deputy national security advisor for um, cyber. That's the only deputy national security advisor for a specific topic, and that's Ann Newberger, who did so much of this work at the National Security Agency and elsewhere. They've got a big staff. They've now named, although not yet gotten confirmed, a national cyber director. They have done the sanctions on uh, Russia. Uh, they're about to turn out an executive order that will put requirements, cybersecurity requirements, on any company that wants to sell to the U.S. government. So these are all good first steps. Um, what they haven't done yet, though, is actually figure out how they're going to solve the offense versus defense conundrum, which is that almost everything they want to go outlaw, or if not outlaw, considered to be beyond the bounds uh, for adversaries attacking the United States, falls into the category of things that the adversaries could say we have done at some point to others. And um, their continued inability to talk publicly about our offensive capabilities, what kind of limits should be placed on those, what it is that the United States should and shouldn't be doing in the cyber realm, and trying to go match these up with um, uh, what we're saying about defense, what we're saying about uh, international uh, understandings and agreements, um, that's the hard part ahead. And one hopes that that would be a big part of the first summits with um, both Putin and President Xi of China, 
because if it isn't, um, we're going to see that this is going to emerge even more strongly as the primary way that the major superpowers are undercutting each other and dealing with each other in, in many ways, you know, using the weapon every single day, which is not the way things worked in the Cold War, obviously, with nuclear weapons, fortunately. So, Corey, let's examine, you know, how this might be viewed someplace else. Um, uh, we've, we've, we've talked about some of the big countries that the United States deals with and, and the degree of change that they've seen. We've talked about how the Allies maybe a little bit reluctant to embrace the change because they don't know, you know what's going to stick here in the U.S. Um, but some countries have seen a very dramatic change. Um, perhaps no country, well, I don't know. I mean, I'm going to leave this up to you, but certainly um, uh, China policy uh, uh, has, has become the centerpiece of foreign policy. Um, uh, so certainly Russia has seen a big change. Which countries do you think are, are feeling, you know, the shock of Biden the most? Probably Japan would be my guess, because while Trump liked playing golf with uh, the Japanese prime minister, um, the undercurrent of racism and almost everything President Trump did and the sharp public demands for five-fold increases in Japanese contributions to the stationing of U.S. forces there were really unsettling uh, for a Japanese government that is trying to gently persuade its own public uh, to, uh, to uh, have a military engagement have a military force and an engagement with the United States, Australia, um, uh, India, and other countries that helps protect it, the, the physical country of Japan and its interest against a rising China. So that one feels big. Um, Canada has to be feeling a whole lot better now that their prime minister's not being publicly ridiculed by the president and the of the United States, although the unilateral cancellation of the Keystone Pipeline without consultations with the government of Canada might have um, made them slightly less enthusiastic. Uh, what Afghanistan unquestionably, no, maybe that's not true because um, the continuity of Afghan policy, uh, so that, that one doesn't hold. Uh, what other countries might have experienced the biggest sea change? Britain, because President Trump, um, you know, alternatively loved and hated Boris Johnson, but he definitely loved Brexit and uh, kept intimating that Britain would be at the front of the line for a, a free trade agreement and the buckets of cold water that not just the administration, but Congress are pouring on uh, Britain's desire to say, there's nothing to see here on Northern Ireland, despite the Brexit agreement, uh, I think has to be a real shock to Britain. One of the things that's so interesting about the integrated review that the British government put out a few days ago is how very much they're trying to align themselves with Biden administration policies 
So they're trying to pull off what's known as the Blair pivot of going when he went from being Bill Clinton's best friend to being George Bush's best friend. And they're trying to, to pirouette that once again, and with good reason. They call that the poodle pirouette. Ed. Um, uh, uh, the, the, the back in the day, what do you think? Who do you think has been shocked by this the most? Do you agree with Corey's assessments? Are there other people who are like, uh-oh, this is not what we counted on? I pick up a little bit on what Corey just said. I mean, I think that's right. The integrated review that Britain produced. I mean, Britain's basically got its its nose, whether it's a poodle or a bulldog, it's got its nose to the window and it's kind of licking the window and it wants to join the quad and it's offering to send an aircraft carrier, you know, to the uh, um, Indo-Pacific region, um, which is an extraordinary measure of that sort of pivot. Um, that the Britons are undertaking. Um, it's pivoting away from Europe, regardless of whether Trump is in office or Biden's in office. And it's desperate to, it's desperate to be an important partner to America in, in, in far-flung parts of the world. Um, Ireland, I think, had good reason to believe that this is not just uh, the second Irish-American president, but the first practicing Catholic Irish-American president. Um, and I don't know, I haven't spoken enough to my Irish friends to understand the response to the global minimum tax that, that is a very significant, as we think of it as economic policy, but on the global stage, this is a very significant and important, and I think highly necessary uh, measure that Janet Yellen has proposed. Um, but it's not good for Ireland. Ireland's tax is 12 and a half percent. Um, and this is a 21% proposal um, by the Biden administration. So I'm not sure how, how happy Ireland is with that. I mean, my guess is they, they can see around the curve and they understand they've got value added. This isn't just a sort of Luxembourg accounting trick. There are talented people in the Irish labor force, but it's not the sort of most significant thing they would have expected out of Biden. Um, other countries, well, we talked about India, but the, the quad is really important. And the fact that India is now fully back in, in the quad and like now a militantly pro-quad member. Um, and that, you know, before this latest India outbreak, there was this big initiative, a uh, vaccine initiative with the quad, with Japan financed um, uh, India to produce and Australia to help distribute vaccines to Southeast Asia. That's a, that was a really smart move, I thought. And it could only happen if there's a level of conversation between these four countries that just wasn't happening five, six years ago or, or, or one year ago. Um, so India might be a sort of, in that respect, a surprise on the upside. David, uh, we've got about 10 minutes to go. So let's turn our conversation to what the first 100 days tells you about the next 100 days. What are you looking for over, over the next three months? Well, I guess I would um, say, you know, I would I would do that by looking at two countries we didn't discuss in that in uh, Corey and Ed's list. And I agree with their uh, list by and large. South Korea, they um, are getting pretty nervous because they're suddenly recognizing that President Biden has no intention of going over and doing the fake make nice with the North Koreans. And they're afraid, rightly so, 
that the North Koreans are likely to stage some kind of incident in the next hundred days, just to remind the world that they're out there and can be a menace. So we're looking forward to hearing what the um, South, that the North Korea uh, review is going to uh, yield at this White House. And I think we know what it's going to yield. It's going to be back to a sort of bottom-up uh, effort where the North Koreans are going to have to um, uh, agree to some small steps, which they're unlikely to go do, and the situation will be pretty well frozen. And we're at a situation right now where North Korea has nearly got the, the sized arsenal that, say, Pakistan did and some others when we sort of gave up on trying to stop a, a Pakistan from becoming a nuclear power. Um, Iran, I think in the next 100 days, you will see whether this we get back to the JCPOA or not. And you're going to see the Israelis continue to try to undercut it, as we saw with the explosion at Natanz. Um, and I think that's going to be a really fascinating dynamic to play out. And I think that the big wild card in all of this is, does Putin continue to back off as he did over the weekend in Ukraine? Or was this just a dress rehearsal for future activity to show how disruptive he can be? Because his only power is the power to be unpredictable and, and disruptive here, both in real space and in cyberspace. So um, uh, if I had to go predict an area where you might well see a flare up, I suspect uh, that would be it. Um, and of course, by summer, we're going to presumably see a full-fledged China strategy. Uh, and in the end, that's probably the one thing this administration will be remembered for more than anything else. Next hundred days, Corey. I think David's exactly right on China as the focus of the next hundred days. And the thing I will be looking most closely for in the administration's strategy is whether they have any plan for or conceivable prospect of aligning Silicon Valley and Wall Street with their China strategy, because both of those areas of dynamism and vitality in the American economy continue to pour money and cooperation into China in a way that is fueling the very threats that the administration strategy is focused on. So that'll be, I think, one really important um, way of seeing whether this administration can make that magic uh, holy grail of whole of government operations or whole of society operations be anything more than an empty slogan. Uh, and I think the degree of difficulty is enormously high on that. Uh, so I mean it as a compliment to them that I think that uh, that's a big challenge that they might not succeed at. The other thing I'll be looking for is whether the administration is willing to let allied priorities become our priorities. Uh, you know, not just India, but other close American allies, countries we have deep intelligence, societal and defense cooperation with are begging for access to vaccines. 
and how the administration makes a decision of who gets what when is actually going to have really major foreign policy uh, implications. And then the third one for me is the how they will bring the national security and defense strategies into alignment with their spending plans. The elimination of the OCO operational fund and what looks to be a one and a half to 2% real cut in defense spending matched against a very ambitious defense strategy. I think those are three big challenges they'll have to face for the next 100 days. Ed? Yeah, I mean, I won't elaborate on the global pandemic becoming more of a global strategy than, a, than an American vaccination strategy because we've talked about that, but that's going to be a key piece of the next 100 days. Um, you know, I do think the border crisis you know, is also the job that Kamala Harris has been given with the Northern Triangle countries um, in Central America is, is a pretty difficult job. It's not the kindest of portfolios to give your vice president. Um, but it is an important one. It's not a trivial role that uh, Kamala Harris has been asked to address. It's going to be a very important one, and I think it's going to become more prominent in the coming weeks because of the numbers at the border um, and because those countries in Central America and Mexico are not going to, uh, you know, are not going to change their situations unless America can drastically change incentives and, and shape the situation on the ground. It's a very, very difficult problem, which is a foreign policy and a domestic policy one. And I think it's going to become quite central. I'll just for the third, reiterate what both David and Corey have, have, have mentioned. The China one is clearly the most important, um, surpassingly important issue. But um, I think it might be unfair to expect a strategy to come out. I, I mean, I don't think there's going to be one clear sort of like doctrine of how you deal with China. I think it's going to have to be a bit more blurry than that. Okay. I, you know, I think that's a, you know, useful overview of, of where we are. I think, you know, the most important thing was said very early on, hundred days is arbitrary. And as David said, you don't learn a lot from hundred days. Uh, I think in this particular case, it may be slightly more worth it note because the change from the last administration is so great and we're in the midst of a crisis and the steps taken to address the crisis have been rather substantial. Um, and that has had a consequence of, of changing the way uh, we're seen overseas rather dramatically. Um, but of course, the heavy lifting lies ahead uh, uh, in, the, in, the, in the bulk of the remainder of the administration, um, whether similar big steps can be taken, similar popular support can be maintained, uh, ways of managing the hill can be uh, handled. Uh, and of course, the world is likely to uh, throw at the Biden administration challenges that we have not described here. And uh, despite the best efforts of our, uh, our, our band of, merry band of experts here, um, I, I, I think we need to prepare for that as well. Um, uh, so we'll be talking about all those things in the in the in the week to come, in the weeks to come, um, and I encourage you to join us if you want to learn more about uh, what we've got in store. Go to the dsrnetwork.com. Uh, we've got a, a new podcast that uh, launches this week called Spy Talk. Um, uh, Gene Meserve, formerly of CNN and uh, 
uh, uh, Jeff Stein, uh, I've put it together. It's a it's a it's a great uh, podcast looking at espionage and, and uh, intelligence issues. Um, and so you've got regular Monday show, you've got spy talk, you've got a regular Thursday show, uh, you've got a usual, typically a one-on-one interactive show. Although this week, the interactive show is going to be Ed Luce and Rana Faruhar talking about economics in more depth uh, and, and letting our members ask questions about it. And then, of course, you've got uh, the ever-popular Secret Life of Cookies. So Look for updates on all of that at the dsrnetwork.com. Click on membership, become a member. We are grateful to you for your support. We are grateful as always for the participation of Ed and uh, Corey and uh, David. Uh, I think Rosa will be back with us again next week and uh, we hope all of you will be too. Bye-bye everybody and uh, stay healthy.